This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The death penalty is one of the weightiest topics lawmakers are debating this session. Abolitionists believe this is the best chance they've had in years. We're going to begin our coverage today with a report from CPR's Benta Berkland. She brings us the voices of legislators who have a very personal stake. It's not a theory. It's not a big picture thing. We actually lived it. We actually had to make the hard choices. Democratic Representative Tom Sullivan's son, Alex, was one of the 12 people murdered in the Aurora Theater shooting. Sullivan supported prosecutors' push for the death penalty for James Holmes. Even though a jury ultimately decided against that punishment, Sullivan says he's glad it was an option. He doesn't want to tell any other family they can't seek what they feel is justice. Even after the fact, there was no remorse. We have a mechanism. Those people don't want to be a part of our society. We should have the ability to take those people out of our society. It's mostly Democrats at the Capitol who are pushing to repeal the death penalty. And Sullivan is going against the majority of his party. But he's not the only one. Of the three men on Colorado's death row... Two are there for the murder of Democratic Senator Rhonda Field's son and his fiance. They were killed days before her son Javad was set to testify in a murder trial. Both Sullivan and Fields got involved in politics because of their family's tragedies. It's just a part of my experience. It's a part of who I am as a lawmaker. I mean, it's a constant pain that I live with every day, and it's something that you just don't get over, you just live through. Senate Bill 182 would only apply to future cases. But Fields believes if it passes, her son's killers will never be executed. Because if it's not good for future crimes, then it probably is not relevant for current. What kind of justice is that for Javad and Vivian? Governor Jared Polis has already said he would sign the death penalty repeal. He also told CPR he would take it as a strong indication that those on death row should have their sentences commuted to life in prison. Bill sponsor Angela Williams says the governor's support is critical. And I'm approaching this with all due respect in the situation that her and Tom Sullivan have been in. The Democratic senator feels the death penalty is too costly and not applied fairly. As a black woman, Williams says she worries for her son and other people of color. The three men who are African-American that sit on death row now, they are all from Arapahoe County. They all went to the same high school. Where you live and the color of your skin and how much money you have depends whether or not you get the death penalty or not. For Williams and some others, it's also about religion. That connection to personal faith may bring Republican votes. GOP Senator Kevin Priola, who is Catholic, is already a co-sponsor. We need to have dignity and grace and love for one another and that they have opportunity in their life to repent for whatever they've done. Democrats have a slim majority in the Senate. With Fields and potentially other members against the bill, they will likely need GOP votes for it to pass. If it makes it to the House, it's on firmer footing. But some members are grappling with what to do. Democratic Representative Dominique Jackson was a television reporter for 20 years and covered crime extensively. She says that gives her a different perspective than almost anyone else in the Capitol. I have seen the crimes. I have been in the courtrooms. I have spent time with the families on both sides. And I've witnessed an individual dying 
by lethal injection. It was 1999 in California. Jackson says she didn't find the experience traumatic because she was just there to take down the facts. But all these years later, she can vividly recall it. I remember the smells. I remember the footsteps walking down the hallways in San Quentin. I remember the eerie green glow of the lights. And I remember that man's chest rising and falling. Jackson says as she tries to make up her mind on the death penalty, she'll put on her reporter hat and make sure she's listening to all sides in the ongoing debate. And that includes the way it shaped the lives of her colleagues. I'm Benta Berkland at the State Capitol. I've asked Benta to join us because we have questions about how this bill and other big, important pieces of legislation are moving forward. Uh, Benta, this bill's first hearing came just two days after it was introduced. That seems really fast to me. Yes, it was introduced on Monday afternoon last week, and the hearing was Wednesday. So that's just one business day in between. That's not much time for the public to become aware it's happening and make plans to testify if this is something they care about. And at this point in the legislative session, you know, we're about midway through. Typically for major bills, there's at least a week between introduction and the first hearing. So, yeah, that surprised me, too. Are there real world consequences to how quickly a bill moves? I think so. This first hearing is actually a big deal. It shapes the narrative. It usually gets the most media coverage. And often it's the first time we hear what lawmakers on the committee are publicly thinking. So if opponents in particular don't have as much time to prepare, it kind of puts them at a disadvantage. I gather there's been pushback to this timeline? Definitely. People who support the death penalty aren't happy at all. Republican Senator Bob Gardner of Colorado Springs made a speech on the Senate floor calling out Democrats for how they handled this. He says he was contacted by someone connected to a victim of one of the men on death row. They wanted to speak at the hearing but weren't able to get there because of the short notice. They know that the repeal of the death penalty will essentially mean that he is taken off death row. And for them, that's that's gut-wrenching. Even if they can ultimately accept it, the fact that they don't have an opportunity to come and tell the committee why it's important to them and what their feelings are on the matter is just unacceptable in terms of public process. What makes it more remarkable is that Senate Democrats control the process, but they're even getting some criticism from within their party. Rhonda Fields, who was in my story, is really frustrated. I think it did not have to be orchestrated this way. The Democrats are in charge in the House and in the Senate. And I want to believe that we are a party that is open to diversity of thought, despite our beliefs. I don't think we need to lead this way. That to help us understand who determines the timing of a bill like this. You know, typically the bill sponsor controls when a bill is introduced And the committee chair has the say over when it gets heard in that committee. But when they're both in the same party, you can assume there's been some level of communication. And I've been told the committee chair often defers to the bill sponsor. Additionally, Senate leadership can be in the loop. I did ask the main sponsor of this death penalty repeal, Senator Angela Williams, about the timing. And she said, look, there's a lot of major legislation Democrats want to get done before lawmakers take up the budget later this month. So she does 
doesn't think there's time to let important bills just hang around before their first hearing. And so are other bills getting this same treatment, the fast track? The other significant example is a Democratic bill to overhaul oil and gas regulations. It's definitely one of the most controversial measures of this session. It was introduced late on a Friday, and the hearing was the following Tuesday. Again, just one business day in between introduction and hearing. But once again, I imagine that the bill's sponsor has a reason for doing things that way. Yeah, and the main sponsor on this one is actually the Democratic Senate Majority Leader, Steve Fenberg of Boulder. He said he's had countless meetings with industry representatives, and the concepts in the bill have been discussed by his party for years. Things like local control, protecting public health and safety, dealing with mineral rights. He says one reason it's moving quickly now is because of all the behind-the-scenes deliberations that delayed the actual introduction. Working on making sure that we we pass a bill that not only works for the industry and is feasible, but also works for the communities that are impacted. And Fenberg defends the first hearing coming up so quickly by noting there will be other hearings, floor debates, and if it passes the Senate, then it goes to the House. Again, opponents of this bill aren't buying it. This is Republican Senator Don Corum of Montrose. I think there's agendas here that are so strong that they feel a mandate that they have to do something immediately. Truth is, this could drag out over a two or three week period. The results would probably be the same, but perception would certainly be different. Speaking here again about oil and gas in particular, is is Corum right? I mean, could a few weeks delay change the course of a bill? Quite possibly, it gives the opposition time to mobilize, and that could lead to some senators getting cold feet, especially on the oil and gas measure. Assuming Republicans hold their line, Democrats in the Senate can only lose one vote and still get this bill through. And the oil and gas industry is likely to spend a lot lobbying against it to put pressure on vulnerable Democrats. Okay, Bento, we've talked about how this kind of timing hurts opponents' ability to mobilize effectively. Uh, But doesn't it also put supporters at a disadvantage? It doesn't seem to. Bill supporters, because they're in touch with sponsors, seem to get a lot more information about when a measure is coming and when it will get its first key hearing. What do you mean? Like, what's the evidence for that? Well, on days with big hearings, both sides will often try to stage a rally before the hearing to get some extra media attention. And I've found in cases where interest groups have permits to rally before the bill is even introduced. So that happened with the paid family leave bill, a major piece of legislation. It was introduced last Thursday. It gets its first hearing this Wednesday. That's not as quick a turnaround, but it's still pretty tight. And people negotiating that bill had known for weeks when the hearing date was going to be. All right. You've been at the Capitol for, gosh, a dozen years. Is this just politics as usual or does something feel different this time? Well, bills moving this quickly, this early in the session, while not unheard of, is unusual. And I think that's why you're hearing a lot of complaints about it. The Denver Post said it couldn't even write an editorial on the oil and gas bill because it was moving too fast to form an opinion. Um, I do want to say it's not every contentious bill. Democrats have a controversial sex ed measure that's had plenty of time pretty much every step of the way. So did the national popular vote. And a bill to temporarily remove guns from people who are a danger to themselves or others. If there's one common denominator, though, I think it's that this accelerated timeline seems to be happening with bills that start in the Senate more so than those that start in the House. Oh, interesting. Benta, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thanks, Ryan. CPR's public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland. If your tax dollars were used for a six-figure settlement with the city, would you want to know about it? It's a question that sent one reporter on a months-long search for accountability. And it's an example of how open records laws in Colorado help ensure the public is not left in the dark. So you may know that this is Sunshine Week, and we're putting a light on that type of reporting. We're going to start today with Conrad Swanson. He covers politics at the Colorado Springs Gazette. Conrad, welcome to the show. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So you found that the Colorado Springs City Council was using executive session, private meetings, to make decisions that by law had to have been made publicly. Yeah. Uh, Specifically legal settlements that should have been agreed to in open meeting. Yeah. I understand you started hearing rumors about this when you started on the job. I did, yeah. They they came pretty quickly. Uh, after I started, uh, you know, folks, former reporters, uh, former council members would come and say, you know, this is how they operate, right? You know, we have these rumors, uh, but nobody's been able to confirm it just yet. Maybe look into it. Okay. You decided to start by focusing on a lawsuit uh, over the coal-fired power plant in downtown Colorado Springs. Yeah, the Martin Drake power plant. Okay. Uh, tell us how this is connected to a lawsuit. Well, it gets kind of convoluted the further back you go. Uh, but long story short, there was uh, or is a uh, open air or uh, open space and environmental advocate, uh, Leslie Weiss, who was involved in this lawsuit over, you know, is this coal plant poisoning downtown? Mm. There was a uh, uh, internal uh, report, I suppose, that actually the, the utilities commissioned this report to say, you know, are, are we how are our missions looking? Uh, but it was sealed. It wasn't open to the public. So she sued. Uh, and they decided in an executive session, the council did, uh, to direct the city attorney to seek professional sanctions against this attorney. Um, try to get her disbarred, I think, in New York and California. For asking this question? Uh, so the, the report that wasn't public uh, was mistakenly released to her. Uh, like a, a clerk of the court made a mistake, gave it to her, and she let some of those details out into the public. Mm. She didn't publish the entire thing, but she told the Gazette reporter what was in it, um, and they were none too happy about that. So they decided to go after her. Okay. And uh, tell us how this relates to what you found. Well, it started, that was the first time I kind of got confirmation. A council member, uh, a little bit after that, was able to confirm, yeah, we decided to do this in executive session. Uh, I started to be in touch with Colorado uh, Freedom of Information Coalition. They're a great resource. Uh, and they kind of told me, you know, hey, they can't make any final decisions. They can't vote. They can't do these really strong-handed things behind closed doors. And so having that confirmation that they did in an executive session was pretty substantial. Okay. And I understand that you knew from looking into city law that any settlements reaching six figures yeah. needed to be decided upon in a public forum during a, a yeah. city council so meeting. Reporting that story is really when I started to learn about what a council can and cannot do in these sessions. And that's where that six-figure $100,000 amount came up is it just kind of put it in my mind. Anything above that threshold, the council needs to vote on to approve. So you wondered if there was a trend. And uh, this is the less glamorous side of investigative reporting. You looked through years of settlements with the city, then compared that to video of past council sessions. Yeah. 
You know, if this were a movie about investigative journalism, it would be taken care of with a quick montage and some music. The Rocky Four montage or whatever, (laughs) yeah. It's hard work, but you found a pattern. Uh, I did, yeah. I mean, um, I could track down these big dollar settlements, uh, and then I'd I'd make sure that there weren't any uh, public votes one way or the other. Um, And, you know, over time, that added up. I went back as far as the records would take me, which is like 2013. And what did you find for a total dollar amount? Uh, it was something like seven, eight cases, maybe a little bit more, uh, for a total of $5.4 million, I think, were all settled without uh, public votes. Okay. And is this in lawsuits in both directions, like when the city is sued and when the city is suing? Uh, generally, I think it's just the city being sued or okay. Colorado Springs utilities being sued. It's a municipal utility, so they're kind of one and the same. Okay. And that was true in the downtown power plant case. Yeah. Yeah, okay. exactly. Uh, how did the Colorado Open Records Act come into your reporting? So this is known as CORA. Yeah. And it's sort of fundamental to sunshine laws in this state. Just briefly tell us. So once I started tracking down all these cases, uh, I started to know where to look. And I filed a CORA request rather than saying to the city, hey, uh, you know, give me all the settlements that you've gone into uh in the last few years, over $100,000, I'd kind of be at their mercy for what they wanted to release. I did all that research, that nasty montage work that we talked about, yeah. uh, and I had case numbers. So I could specifically go and core request, I need case uh, 2013 CV, whatever, whatever, whatever. And that's a heck, heck of a lot harder to you know turn down if, if I know uh, what the case number is, when it was closed, and I'm requesting their settlement documents then uh, it's a lot easier for them to hand that over to me and I can check it out. Did they hand this over? They did. They did. Okay. Has the Colorado Springs City Council changed its behavior? They have. Uh, Earlier this year, uh, they approved or enacted uh, three new ordinances that basically say we can only release certain amount of information until a case is uh, officially settled. Uh, but as much as we can, we're going to come out into public and, and vote. Very briefly, do other cities operate this way? Uh, quite a few, actually, in Colorado. I think off the top of my head, uh, Pueblo uh, does the same thing. I know there's another uh, city out out west. I can't think of the name right now. That's okay. Uh, but th- th- that is that they operate in executive session? They do, yeah. And okay. some, some don't hold executive sessions at all. So it's there's a wide variety across the state. Okay. Conrad, thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Thanks, Ryan. Conrad Swanson is a political reporter at the Colorado Springs Gazette. This is Sunshine Week. And every day this week, we'll elevate the work of Colorado journalists who've uncovered something with the help of open records laws. Tomorrow, my guest is Chris Vanderveen of Nine News. In our feedback segment, Loud and Clear, we're going to focus on my choice of words last week and what I learned afterwards. I referred to the Colorado Energy Office as having a schizophrenic mission because it fights climate change and promotes oil and gas. Several listeners objected to that adjective, like Maureen Mecheco of Aurora. I have family members and also personal experience with mental health and I feel like whenever I hear someone use the term schizophrenic to refer to maybe something that's dichotomous or something unorganized or two different edges of a sword kind of, um, that colloquial usage can really, I think, 
perpetuate confusion, stigma, stereotypes around what the word means. I definitely don't want to further stigmatize mental illness. We talk a lot on this show about fighting stigma. Well, as we began hearing from listeners, I went to the dictionary. The second definition, the one I used, is contradictory or antagonistic qualities. I actually didn't know that was the secondary definition for Merriam-Webster, which I think is really interesting. I don't know. It's As a disease, it just has so much meaning. It means so many different things to different people. If you're a family member of someone with schizophrenia, if you have schizophrenia, I just think that word is really hard to unpack. So we kept unpacking and consulted the AP style book. It says, avoid using mental health terms to describe non-health issues. And that matches a thoughtful email from Allegra De Silva of Littleton. She shared a Slate article about how the word gives people the wrong idea. Quoting here, Schizophrenia is not some unexpected polarity, nor is it a Jekyll and Hyde struggle for control. The article goes on, History shows that language changes how those with illnesses view themselves and how they're treated by others. And so it recommends the secondary definition of schizophrenic no longer be used. And that's advice we'll follow. Keep your feedback coming. You can find all the ways to get in touch at cpr.org slash connect. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Commuters in Metro Denver spend on average 200 hours a year getting to and from work. 200 hours. Maybe it's why so ask about roads through Colorado Wonders. Questions we'll answer today, starting with those signals that tell you when to get on the highway. It's something that actually made it into the act of Fort Collins comedian David Rodriguez. Here's something I don't get about Colorado. The freeway on-ramps, when you have those, the lights, you know, they both turn green for you to come on. Not every state has them turn on at the same time. <laughs> How come Colorado's like, no, we're going to start every freeway driving experience in a low-stakes drag race? Is your car stronger than a Kia Sorento? We'll find out. We'll find out right now. So why aren't those meter lights intermittent? CDOT's chief engineer, Josh Lapley, is here to answer that. And as I said, other road-related questions. Hi, Josh. Hi. Do you identify with that, that you're in a drag race at those on-ramp lights? Yeah. And, you know, as somebody that works at CDOT, I like to yield to the driver next to me just to make sure I'm giving deference. (laughs) You feel an obligation as a public servant (laughs) to do that. Why do those highway on-ramp lights turn green at the same time? Sure. So the technology that's there is kind of stupid. There's one controller that says flip both lights on and it's just on a timing cycle. And we do have plans to upgrade that and do it based on congestion. Now, there is no plan. They still might come on at the same time. Oh, no. You're going to get new ones and you're not going to alleviate this. And and I would say on that merge lane and that acceleration lane that, you know, don't over accelerate, but as you're accelerating up to highway speeds or the speeds of traffic that you're merging into, be courteous to that other driver because there is the capacity there to do that. In other words, there is enough lane, you're saying. Right. 
to allow for that. So I've always wondered if those meter lights detect traffic. They don't currently. No, they currently don't. They're just on a timing cycle. And so what we want to do is upgrade them so they detect not only the traffic of people waiting to get on, but also the traffic on the interstate and try to get people in the gaps that are there and try to keep the interstate moving at more of a constant rate instead of just shoving people in at regular intervals when maybe it's already backed up. If they can be smarter... Maybe we can get more cars through on the same amount of road that we have today. You hope to roll this out, I understand, this summer. Do you know where it will roll out first? Sure. So this is only on the northbound I-25 going from about 470 all the way to university. Through the core of Denver, So through the core. And if we can get some more capacity on that core then it'll be kind of a proof of concept. Australia has actually already rolled this out, but they control all the local roads as well. So they can do signal timing and a whole bunch of sophisticated mm. uh, traffic movement. But uh, Harder for CDOT because Denver runs a lot of those surface streets. Exactly. There's a lot of interest in express lanes. My name is Casey Conway, and I live in Grand Junction, Colorado. So what good are HOV lanes on I-70 when in the winter, when they are most needed for ski traffic, they are not usable? Randy Welch, another listener, phrases it this way. Why are toll lanes ever closed? Automation makes them cheap to operate. So what's the answer as to why these are closed sometimes? Sure. So some technicalities here. Technically, not a lane because of the mountain environment there. And because of the high costs associated with expanding the roadway, we're actually using a shoulder. And because it's only a shoulder, we have permission with federal highways to use it 100 days of the year. Oh, really? This is a special kind of dispensation from the federal government. And it's limited to 100 days a year. Because of this contract that we have with them. Now, if we say, you know what, we're getting really bad traffic 150 days a year, Uh we could use it then. Now, I think one of the points one of the listeners made was... But you need it during the winter. And sometimes we do close it when it's snowing because if you can't see the lane lines, that shoulder lane that we're using is only about 11 feet wide. It's a little narrower than a typical lane would be. Mm. And we don't feel like it operates safely if you can't see all that lane lines because you're trying to cram more cars in a smaller area. So though there may be the need in winter, there's not the associated safety necessarily in winter. But there are, of course, high traffic days during the summer. I can remember being stuck on I-70 in like June for hours. Sure. So two things there. During the winter, most of the time on Saturday and Sunday, if you're coming back from skiing, Uh we try to keep those roads clear and that lane is actually open. Your point about the summer is is relevant. It's actually our highest peak volumes on I-70 are in the summer. Huh. Um, people don't necessarily always think about that, but there's a lot of people that want to go up and enjoy the mountains in the summer. So our highest volumes are in the summer. Could you go to the federal government and say, <clears throat> it's actually really bad traffic 365 days a year. Let us do it. Yeah. You know, one of the things we're finding is folks are going up more on Thursday or Friday, mm. and then coming back, maybe they stay a day later and they come back Monday. If we see those volumes increase, we will ask for a revision to our application and say, you know what, we're going to need 120, 130 days this year because we're getting that congestion. We want to alleviate it. Okay. Some highway history now. I'm Leslie Harper from Highlands Ranch. I've been curious about the sign on I-70 honoring the Tuskegee Airmen. I wondered what triggered Colorado to dedicate it that way. 
I'll note that one of the original Tuskegee Airmen, Franklin Macon, is a native of Colorado Springs. And uh, these, of course, were the trailblazing black pilots of World War II. Why is a stretch of I-70 through Denver named after them? So that's a great question. CDOT doesn't give those designations typically. So usually that comes from our legislature. Now, one of the things we're sensitive to using taxpayer dollars to name things. So usually there's a private foundation or private funding behind that that actually pays for the signage and, and puts that up there. And that was the case then with the Tuskegee Airmen. Yes. There was a dedication ceremony, actually, in 2006. Mm -hmm. And this was, according to an article from that time, indeed a nod to the many Tuskegee Airmen who live in Colorado, 450 of them trained in Alabama. I also think of the fact that near Colorado Springs, part of I-25 is named after Ronald Reagan. I guess that would have been the same process. Yes. I think traffic flow is a real mystery And one listener wanted to know why C-470 backs up every day at the Morrison exit. He says, for no reason. But I gather there may be a reason. There may be. So this is a little bit complex. So let me know if you follow through all this. So I like that you're warming your hands in preparation. That's right. This is fun. This is engineering and traffic flow and driver behavior, right? So there's only two lanes over the Morrison Road Bridge. And then heading south from Golden, there's three lanes. And the right-hand lane becomes a must-exit lane at Morrison Road. Okay, I know those. Those are the ones that are forcing me off the road, okay? That's right. And so during heavy traffic, which is most weekday afternoons, as we all know, cars in the right lane merge, and that merge causes a backup of about a mile or two. And then the northbound traffic has a similar issue in the morning, but complicated by the fact that US-285 delivers a lot of traffic immediately south of Morrison Road that has to exit on the ramp in addition to the C-470 traffic that's already there. I think about it like water sometimes, right? Like when you have slow-moving water into fast-moving water, there becomes these eddies, Hmm. right? And kayakers love those things. (laughs) Traffic flow, not so good with eddies. Oh, traffic as water. I'll never look at traffic the same way again. Now, when something eddies too much, does CDOT think we need to re-engineer the river? Sure. So uh, sometimes what you'll see us do is we'll go out and we'll increase the distance or the length of those merge lanes. And if we have the right of way and we're able to do that, a lot of times that'll improve the traffic flow. Okay. You also have to have the money to do something like that. Yes. Uh-huh. Everything costs something, right? Another name question now. Hello. My name is Rudy Lucas. I live in Highlands Ranch. And I've been wondering, why is C-470 not I-470? And will it ever become part of the official U.S. interstate system? That's a bit of a history question. So it goes all the way back to pre-Governor Lamb when there was this idea in the, in the Transportation Commission, which is the governing body for CDOT. And this is Dick Lamb. Yes. Yep. Yes. Um, came up with, hey, we should do this circular loop around the city called I-470. And if you go back in time to about 1975, Governor Lamb then said he was going to put a silver stake through the heart of that project. There was going to be no loop. There was going to be no I-470. Now, we should remember that this was a governor and previously a state lawmaker who was very concerned about Colorado's growth. Yes, I think there was a tagline there, keep Colorado for Coloradans. Okay, and so he thought that I-470 would be just probably, what, a huge growth spurt. Exactly. And so if we don't build it, they won't come. I think what we've found out over time is we didn't 
totally build that, and they came anyway. Okay, but the point is, it never got I for what reason, though? So we designed it as an interstate, but because it was never really accepted by the state government and uh-huh. submitted to federal highways to apply for interstate designation, it does not have it. It, li- it lives in this middle ground. It does. It's kind of a purgatory for interstates, right? Gosh, that's fascinating. Is it officially a state highway then? Yes. Got it. Never joined the interstate system. Will it ever? It could. We could apply as a state to say, hey, we want I-470 designated instead of C-470. But I think now it's become such a part of Colorado that even if we got that designation, we would probably still want to sign it C-470. So maybe we just keep it C-470 for now. But right now that means there's no federal money for C-470. Or does it? We can use federal money on it. We use federal money on state highways all the time. Because there's a national interest in those. Yes. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are answering your questions about highways, roads, even signage. My guest is the chief engineer for CDOT, Josh Lapley. Through Colorado Wonders, three different people asked about test signs. Here's Scott Harper. What's with the test sign on Highway 93. It faces southbound traffic just past the junction with Highway 128. It's been there forever. Scott took a photo of this sign for us, Josh. It is about as unremarkable as a sign could be. Small white rectangle with weathered black letters, and it literally says test sign. And what are we testing? Uh We're testing what's called retro reflectivity, which basically means how well do your headlights or the light from the sun bounce off the sign that you can see it? And mostly at night, right? There are particles within the sign that bounce back from your headlights to make it visible. Now that one's old. And so what we're doing is we're measuring the degradation. (laughs) The degradation of its ability to shine back at you. Exactly. That's some road nerddom right there. Yeah, it it took me a little while. I'm proud to know it now, though, so your (laughs) listeners are on top of things. Similarly, James Estes has seen signs declaring the start of an MEPDG test section. He wonders what that means. Right. Acronyms. We love acronyms (laughs) at our state agencies. So that stands for Mechanistic Empirical Pavement Design Guide. So the design guide has equations in it that are different than the typical equations we use to design roads. Meaning that stretch of road is like fundamentally built differently. That's right. the, the materials are different. The equations that we've used to come up with the different materials to make that asphalt is different. Oh. Sometimes you've got more rock, more aggregate, or more oil. And in a different mixture of oil, there's all kinds of different chemical compositions of oil that functions differently at different temperatures. And so all of that, it's really a a chemical engineering analysis that comes up with pavement design. And so that's a different set of equations. And we want to see how that set of equations performed. Interesting. So when I see MEPDG test section, I should think they used a different recipe to make this part of the road. That's exactly right. All right. Onward and upward. Hi, this is Steve Orr from Boulder. I wonder about Highway 93 and whether it's ever going to connect north of Golden to the Northwest Parkway. Seems like I've been hearing talk about that for about two decades. Thanks a lot. Josh, I think he's talking about a loop that's been called the Jefferson Parkway, which would connect as well 
to Highway 128 in Broomfield. Do I have that right? Yep. So we're talking about like a four-lane toll road? Right. What's the status of the connection? Sure. So that's, you know, kind of back to your previous listener's question of I-470, this loop around the city. Yeah. Colorado, CDOT, completed the C-470, and then a private financier came in and created E-470 and created that part of the loop. Okay. I take that to the airport. Right. And then the next piece came in is the Northwest Parkway. I got stuck on that toll road once. Okay. And now there's this missing link that is the Jefferson Parkway that people, I think they're getting proposals right now to see if someone could finance and construct that, but not in the near future that I know of. Okay. But that would complete, in other words, a kind of end run around the metro through toll lanes, I guess private toll lanes. Correct. Correct. But it's not happening tomorrow. No. Okay, making our way to the end of these Colorado Wonders transportation questions. My name is John Lilquist, and I live in Arvada. What are the high-voltage metal panels on the side of the bridges on I-76 west of I-25? It was kind of hard for me to picture, so John sent a photo. And I'm not sure the panels themselves are high-voltage, but they seem to warn of something behind them that could shock you. What are these random panels? Yeah, so the, the panels themselves are not high voltage, but they're protecting high voltage lines, the catenary lines from the light rail that's below oh. for, for splashback of salt and sand and slush when we're clearing roads or when a semi goes through and sprays. You know, typically a train can handle that, but the high voltage catenary of a light rail doesn't really like all that water and slush and salt and sand coming down on it. So it prevents the splash onto the light rail. Correct. Well, thanks for answering all these questions. Yeah. CDOT's chief engineer, Josh Lapley. What do you wonder about in Colorado? We'd love to look into it for you. Head to CPR.org and click the Colorado Wonders link. It looks like a license plate. When we come back, what might be the coolest title in the world? Asteroid Scientist. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Sam Brash, host of our politics podcast, Purplish. Our new episode is all about a plan dividing the country and Colorado, the National Popular Vote Compact. This bill is about every single person coming together to vote up for our president of the United States. Our state will lose our sovereignty. Kiss it goodbye. Looks like Colorado will be the next state to join the effort to sideline the Electoral College, how it's gotten so partisan, and whether it could ever work. That's Purplish from CPR News, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Scientists were mapping a glacier in Greenland when they made a discovery, a giant asteroid crater deep under the ice. Last month, they found another one. The second crater was so close to the first, scientists wondered where they created at the same time, like a one-two punch. To get an answer, they turned to an asteroid expert in Boulder, Bill Botke. Hi, Bill. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. These two craters are buried at least a half mile under the Hiawatha Glacier, and the craters are huge. The first one is 19 miles across, the other 22 miles. Uh, How big would an asteroid have to be to create dents in the Earth that size? Well, when you're making craters, typically you look at asteroids that are maybe about 20 times smaller. Okay, so if you had an asteroid or a crater that was about 20 miles across, that would suggest that about a mile-wide asteroid probably made it. Interesting. So when that impact happens, uh, there's a bit of a ripple effect in, in the Earth. It's a huge impact. 
Yes, you create this gigantic movement of Earth, which moves things away from the impact site. If the impact's large enough, you can actually eject material into the atmosphere far enough that it can actually enter into orbit for a short time before it lands again. Oh my so, goodness. So you can have material flying all across the Earth from certain impacts, depending on their size. Okay, both craters rank among the 25 largest ever found on Earth. And geologically speaking, they're right next to each other, just over 100 miles apart. That's, what, about the distance between Boulder and Colorado Springs, I think. So the question is, were they made at the same time? Or by sheer coincidence, did two giant asteroids hit roughly the same spot at different times. What what do you think is most likely? Well, this is something we looked at because they're so close together, the natural thing to think is, well, maybe they were made by an asteroid with maybe a large moon when they happened to hit. We do find asteroids with moons, and so it's not a not a not an unreasonable thought. But we decided to sort of uh, do play some computer models to see what we could find. So we created a simulation where we were having asteroids hit the Earth, and then we looked at how often asteroids would create craters very close to one another, and then statistically you want to make an argument as to whether these things are common or uncommon. And we found that while most craters are fairly far apart, every now and then you get some that are close together like these two craters. And so in the end, when we looked at all the craters across the Earth, the chances of getting too close together by chance were actually pretty good. So we think they could be made in the same event, but the likelihood is they're not. The likelihood is that they're not. Fascinating to think that an asteroid could collide uh, with Earth and bring its moon with it. I I just am trying to wrap my head around that. Well, these these events happen from time to time. We see asteroids out in space that often have little satellites. Usually they're much smaller. Uh, The typical satellite will be, let's say, about 10 times smaller than the asteroid itself. And when they come in the atmosphere, sometimes they can get separated by the aerodynamic forces and pushed far enough apart that you can actually get two craters next to one another. So, for example, for some of those that have been to Germany, there is a place where there's the town of Ries, which lies inside the Ries crater, which is about 20 kilometers across. And nearby, there's a close crater about a kilometer across called Steinheim. And it's believed that those were made by the impact of a binary asteroid. Okay, that place is going on my bucket list now. Thanks for that. Uh, to think about these Greenland craters, you relied on research that you've just published about impact craters on the moon. Uh, and what you found is that for a billion years, not much hit the moon. And then in the last 300 million years, impacts almost tripled. There was this uh, intensifying of craters and, well, uh, asteroids, obviously. Yeah, this was a really interesting and fun study that we were involved with, where, you know, very often we're trying to find out how often asteroids have hit the Earth, because that tells us about events in the asteroid belt, that tells us events across the solar system and the rest. And so we found a clever way to try to be able to get the ages of craters on the moon. And that was using some new data from one of NASA's uh, orbiters called the the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. It has an instrument on it. Uh, called Diviner, which can measure temperatures across the moon. So you think, well, temperatures have nothing to do with craters. What's going on? Uh But um, the temperatures on the moon can tell you something about how many rocks exist on the moon. 
Like imagine everyone listening has probably been to the beach and if you stand on the sand at a really hot day, it's hot, right? The sand gets really hot. But if you wait till nighttime, the sand cools down almost immediately. But rocks take a long time to heat up and they take a long time to cool back down. And so by looking at temperatures and the nighttime on the moon, you can actually see where the rocks are. Okay. And it turns out all the fresh craters on the moon that formed over the last billion years are very rocky. And in fact, you can, if you figure out how rocks break down, you can use the number of rocks or the abundance of rocks in your craters like a clock to tell you how old the craters are. And so from that, we found out there are many more large craters on the moon formed over the last 300 million years than there were between about 300 and a billion years. And they suggest that the impact rate increased by about a factor of two to three about 300 million years ago. That is some serious scientific sleuthing. You gave your data to a sound company to create a musical illustration, and I want to play a, a couple of clips. Here's the first. So this is a span of 300 million years, starting a billion years ago, and each chime represents an impact. Right, the occasional hit, but here's the last 300 million years. It's a carillon of asteroid impacts. Why suddenly 300 million years ago would a bombardment start? Well, this is an excellent question, and it's something we're still researching, but I think I have a, a pretty good idea of what's happening. So some of your listeners may wonder, well, why do asteroids even hit the Earth? Like, you know, where do these asteroids come from? Ultimately, they all come from the main asteroid belt, which is located between the orbits of Mars and the orbit of Jupiter. From time to time, big asteroids strike one another, and they create all these fragments. But typically, you know, many of them just sit in the asteroid belt. It's a fairly stable region. But the smaller ones begin to be heated up by sunlight. And then when they re-radiate the energy as heat, that produces a small little thrust. And if you wait millions, in some cases even billions of years, that can move the asteroids in the asteroid belt far enough that they can escape out of really interesting escape hatches. So the way to think about it is that if you have a big asteroid breakup event in the asteroid belt, it's all like starting a landslide. And eventually the landslide reaches the bottom of the hill, and you can imagine like Earth and Moon sitting at the bottom of the hill, and all of a sudden these boulders are rolling through town where they weren't before. Okay, so you can get hundreds of millions of years of increases from a very large breakup event if it breaks up at the right place and has all the advantages in terms of delivering things to the Earth and Moon. It's not a comforting picture that you paint there. Uh, I mean, I'm glad to know the asteroid belt is relatively stable, but when you dedicate a career to studying asteroids, do you necessarily live in, in fear or with the reality that we might be bombarded uh, significantly here on Earth while we're here? I, I think there's sort of two ways to look at this. So, so I don't go to bed worried about asteroids hitting at night. So I don't think anybody else should as well. Okay. But, but if you think about, you know, our jobs and the rest, we all pay a little bit of money every year for life insurance, just in case something really bad happens. And that's kind of the way to think about asteroids. Right now, um, the, the NASA and the United States government is paying the order of about uh, several tens of millions of dollars to search for threatening asteroids that potentially have uh, concrete damage on the earth. And 
that number is right, is, has been good enough to find most of the large ones that might be able to hit the earth. And so now we're getting down to the smaller ones and they're more challenging. So we might need to raise that money a little bit more. We find it fun to find the rest of the challenge or the most difficult ones, uh, to get. But in the end, this is an actually a solvable problem, which is actually very nice about it. Um, so I think the odds are very low that an asteroid might hit, but it is not zero. And so it makes sense to spend some money to try to investigate this. I'm glad we're watching out. Bill Botke is an asteroid expert at Southwest Research Institute in Boulder. He co-wrote a paper about the second impact crater found under the ice in Greenland. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.